Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 29 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, August the 16th. First, I'll be talking to Yanir Yakachel, founder and CEO of Aussie fintech SME lender Lumi. And then I'll be talking to Michael Ivory, Rabobank's Head of Financial Markets Research, Asia-Pacific. He'll be talking to us about the US-China trade war and what it means. But first, let's talk to Yanir Yakuchil. Uh Yanir, tell us about Lumi and what it does. For uh, You're a fintech and you raise money and you lend money for small business. Is that right? That's, that's correct. So we are an SME lender, which basically means we provide loans to what is generically called SME, so small and medium enterprises. We really focus on the S in SME. So most of our customers would be owner-operated businesses, whether a company or a sole trader, um, sometimes a partnership, etc. Um, as I said, owner-operated, sometimes several partners, typically within the same family group uh, that we have found that are underserviced by the bank. So Banks are typically very good at personal banking and corporate and enterprise banking, uh, but the smaller end of town is sort of you know the guy having the the coffee barista, the, you know the lobby of a building, small cafes, etc., retail and hospitality. The banks don't know how to serve quite well, and we are coming to uh, uh, fill that need. I mean, basically, these these uh, these people don't have to borrow that much. I mean. Uh... They can have access up to about $100,000. Is that right? That's right. So our average loan size is about just under $30,000. And yeah, we'll typically go up to 100, sometimes slightly more. But uh, you hit the nail bang on the head. You know, these are small amounts for short periods of time, typically, that are required to um, fill the, um, the cash flow requirements of the business. So and, if you, and these if are businesses you, that can't get any input from the bank at all because they're just that's, small. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Absolutely. And so, you know, the feedback that we get from our customers is, you know, typically they'll go to their bank and it will take them six to eight weeks to get a negative answer, right? So with us, in fairness, you know, some of, we sometimes give negative answers. That's true. But um, um, whether the answer is positive or negative, and we always hope it's a positive, it's a very fast one. So, the, you know, the turnaround times from the moment we get the application with all the details until you've got a final credit decision with pricing and loan contracts would typically be under an hour. Right. Okay. Okay. So uh, what, what kind of turnovers do these businesses have? So it would be anything from... Fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year. Um, typically, sixty is really sort of our cutoff. Our cutoff rate. We, we sort of see anything below sixty thousand dollars a year as not really a, a genuine business. It's more sort of a lifestyle business or a side occupation. It's quite difficult to underwrite up to several million a year. In fairness, I'd say you know, it's misleading to look at averages. So let's sort of look at the medians or mean would typically be. Um, sub a sub, uh, million dollars a year. Anything above a million dollars a year is more the exception than the rule. Right. And uh, being a fintech, you would have all sorts of uh, uh, automation, wouldn't you? No. It's, so it's, our systems are very highly automa- automated. So with a very small team, and our team is growing nevertheless, but like we have a small team, even compared to other fintechs, uh, we've automated a wide variety of the processes. So people sort of look at the loan as the application and the credit and the underwriting, but actually the the most traditionally, the labor intensive part of the um, loan cycle was um, collections and servicing. Um, We've automated most of that. Um, So with us, even though we do have um, a great team, there's no such thing as, you know, like a call center in Manila or processing center, um, all the mundane tasks that can be automated have um, have been automated, and that really reduces our our cost base, which we over time uh, are passing on to our customers and gives us a competitive advantage. So, you know, just by way of example, the communications with the customer to the extent that from after the point of uh, origination and disbursement. So we're talking about a live loan to, you know, to Johnny 
the plumber to the extent that uh, there is no issues with the load or the communications regarding p- possible top-ups, etc., cetera, are automated regarding promotions, um, certain other products uh, that could be relevant to them given um, the industry they're in and we record all that information. And slightly more traditionally labor-intensive to the extent that there are uh, issues with collections and recoveries. Again, there's a vast amount of automation in terms of communications with the customers, drawing up of letters, etc., that have traditionally been so labor-intensive that uh, lenders have actually outsourced them because they weren't able they weren't able to manage them in a cost-effective way in-house. A lot of being a fintech, you would use a lot of algorithms, wouldn't you? Yeah, so we do. Um, you know, algorithms, AI, and machine learning are sort of you know sort of buzzwords that people use all the time. So. You know, to break it down, you know, an algorithm is basically a systematic process. So when I make a fried egg, I follow an algorithm, right? Open the fridge, right. take an egg, you know, heat the frying pan. So there's algorithms a lot ba- of... Algorithms are basically just instructions. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, but, you know, sort of in, in a more tech-specific way, what we do is um, in the credit decisioning, and that's the most algorithmic-laden part of the of the process, we get vast amount of information um, about the applicant. And what we do is use um, algorithmic decision to bucket uh, data into recommendations. So again, one of the most time consuming part of credit underwriting is going through the vast amount of information that an applicant has. And this is the b- biggest problem that S- with SMEs, and that's why banks don't like doing it, is every business is different, right? So you can't compare someone that owns you know, five ponies that bought $5,000 worth of hay to a guy that's got like a, a, um, a mining services business in you know, northern Queensland, et cetera, that you know, does five to $10 million um, per annum and anything in between. So what we do is take all the information and that allows us to use vast amount of information. We've got literally hundreds of data points, sometimes in some applications, thousands of data points and use uh, logical heuristics to recognize patterns that a human underwriter would never be able to recognize. So for instance, we take, you know, the most notable example would be the bank statements. And in some cases, that could be thousands and thousands and thousands of lines. We put that into the system. We algorithmically bucket um, the various uh, cash components, whether cash coming in or cash coming out, uh, into finance, you know, rent, pay, tax, um, and about uh, 25 uh, groups. We are able to see if there are trends that a human eye would, uh, would find hard to pick up. We're able to scan vast amount of information to pick up um, anything that is untoward, so if there's gambling, um, yeah, too much you know, booze coming out of the account, cash withdrawals on a Thursday night at the ATM close to the casino, whatever the case may be, and gives us a profile that goes beyond the traditional credit assessment that a bank would do. And we also, apart from the credit scoring, we put a social scoring on it that in most cases uh, enhances the credit uh, uh, decision and makes it easier to give credit where somebody else wouldn't. But in fairness, sometimes we would see uh, a good business uh, that we def- we find that there is a 
negative social footprint and we wouldn't uh, lend. Gambling, I've got to say, is, is the most notable example of this. Um, and if, if we see this uh, substantial gambling going through uh, an account, anything that's sort of beyond um, sort of a social couple of dollars at uh, the local bookies, uh, we tend to see that as um, quite substantial credit risk. So what, you, what you're actually doing is you're taking the traditional credit data route, but you're linking it to the applicant's social footprint, and that creates, that, gives you a holistic view about their that's, that, service alone. That's, that's exactly right. So the social footprint is one. Um, the, 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 the reputational footprint of the business is another. So another example of something that we use is, and this is very typical with businesses that have reviews. So hospitality is the most notable example, but it's actually quite true for tradies as well. Um, we use a variety of technologies to um, skim the internet for various reviews. So for instance, I'll give you an example. It's, it's like a rest. It's, it's a restaurant. And, you, and, and the key is it's hard. And th this is where, you know, the differentiation between good implementation and bad implementation is. Uh, and a restaurant, the best example is, for instance, we look at the review sites. You know, for restaurants, it would be, typically be TripAdvisor. And we use natural uh, language processing to analyze the trend of the reviews. Are the reviews getting better or worse? And that has a credit implication. Having said that, a second-order consideration with these sorts of things is a restaurant could be or a bar could be doing so well that the reviews are actually going down because people are starting to say, Johnny's bar was you know, great, used to go there five months ago. All of a sudden, you know, it's become so popular. You know, there's a queue at the door, service has gone, or whatever the case may be, which is unfortunate for the historical regular customers, but from a, from a credit perspective, it's actually positive because they're doing quite well. They're, they're able to raise prices or whatever the case may be. Another example is, um, is with um, service providers, predominantly for the building industry. Um, you know, you get an applicant, whatever it may be, a plumber uh, or a kitchen installer, the variety of sites that you know, give reviews for these sorts of things. You know, if, if you're reading, and this is all done algorithmically while the loan is being underwritten, that's why we can do it so quickly, is, you know, Johnny, you know, terrible, you know, took my deposit, went away, blah, 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 whatever the case may be. Obviously, that is, this is bad, bad credit. The converse is obviously true as well. If, you know, there's positive reviews, um, that increases the credit score. So I think to sum it all up, the key pretty much in any business like is always on the margins, right? So we looking so we look at as as you said, we look traditional credit data, we, we do it smarter and faster in a very tech enabled way, but we augment that and with um, with a variety of social and other footprints and to see if, if there is a neg if there is a marginal loan that looks positive, a positive a marginal positive, can we find something that somebody else doesn't see and decline it. And the opposite is there something, and that's notably the case with SMEL, is there something, you know, this is a negative but a marginal one. What can we see that others don't that make it a positive and approve it? And I think that's the success of these sorts of businesses. And uh, you can do that in how, how quick a period of time? As I said, less than an hour. That's amazing. 
Well, Yanir, that is extraordinary. That is absolutely extraordinary. And uh, wishing Lumi all the best. Thank you very much. No, thank you very much for having me. And now let's talk to Michael Ivory, Rabobank's Head of Financial Markets Research, Asia Pacific. Uh, Michael, uh, what's your view about the trade war? It's escalated with the US administration's decision to add a 10% tariff on the remaining uh, uh, $300 billion of China's import good, and uh, China has uh, uh, turned it into a currency war. What's your view about it? Um, it isn't a trade war, and it isn't a currency war. It's a cold war between the two countries. I've been saying that for nearly two years, including to many clients down in Australia that I've been to visit over that period of time. Uh, That was my initial assessment going back all the way then, that fundamentally what the US and what China wants are vastly different. Um, This is a clash between the two that ranges from physical geography to ideology, to currency, to trade, to economics. Uh, And I simply don't see where the middle ground between the two can be. So one can describe it as a trade war if one wants, One can describe it as a currency war, but both of them are merely the first stages uh, in subsets of what is a much, much larger struggle. That is very interesting. Now, so what impact do you see this happening on uh, the global economy? Well, far from good in the near term. We are going to see, and we're already seeing step by step, stage by stage, uh, a decoupling of the two. Effectively, the terms of what Trump is offering to China uh, are open up your economy, make it look much more like the US or more like Japan, if you will. If you do that, fine. Then uh, we can continue to deal with you as, uh, you know, one economy to another in an integrated global economy. And if you won't do that, uh, then we are going to decouple. And that decoupling is going to be an incredible seismic tectonic plate shifting shock to the global economy. And of all the economies around the world that stand to suffer within that particular shift, New Zealand and Australia are number one and number two. Why is that? Well, because culturally, both of you are entirely Western, and Australia in particular much more vocally uh, underlines the fact regularly that you're part of the Western alliance and part of the U.S. defense umbrella. And economically, you have absolutely tied yourself to China's economy. So... All your money uh, in terms of exports basically comes from one direction and your culture and your defense comes from another. And what's going to happen if the two can't meet in the middle? Well, that is quite extraordinary. And uh, so how soon do you see this happening? It already is. I mean, Aussie coal obviously has already been sucked into it. We've seen brief uh, Chinese warnings about beef and, and, and wine and each one of those uh, has you know, been temporary and reversed. But you are now seeing more and more public figures in Australia, I mean, you all know better than myself, um, coming out and saying things very similar to what I'm saying now and what I've been saying for two years. Um, And these are going to have an absolutely existential effect on the economy over time, even if it's with a lag. So which exports will be hit primarily? Agricultural or mining? I would think, knowing China, whatever they can get their hands on. Basically, the Chinese foreign policy uh, link to the economy is always, here's a country doing something that we don't like. We will hit them wherever it hurts hardest for as long as possible until they change their foreign policy, which, by the way, completely underlines why China is not a part of the Western Alliance and why Trump is trying to affect changes in terms of how China is operated. Because while that may be becoming more and more normal, even for the U.S. at the moment, 
it's only doing that because that's how China has always operated. Um, so I can't point to any one particular export and say, are we that first or that second? But all of them, including tourism exports, including uh, the students who come and study in Aussie universities, absolutely everything is potentially in the firing line if Australia is seen as not towing China's foreign policy line. And more and more, Australia isn't. But the issue, as far as I can see, is that China seems to be playing very much the long game, whereas Trump very much has his focus on 2020. Uh, That's correct. Uh, I think it's very, very hard to disagree with that particular assessment. But what I am seeing more and more signs of uh, is that in the US too, there is a greater recognition, perhaps not from Donald Trump himself, but from people around him, uh, and certainly from younger members of, of think tanks on China, that this is also a long game for the US too. So, for example, if you consider the rather controversial speech given by a member of the Aussie government last week talking about the need to confront China uh, for, for, for being what it is, uh, you know, drawing analogies to Stalin uh, and saying that it's the biggest foreign policy challenge in decades for Australia, exactly those kind of speeches are being made by many figures in the US. And Trump actually is probably the biggest dove in his cabinet now, apart from Mnuchin. Uh, and would be you know, very happy to try and do a deal. But there are people all around him pointing out if it can't be done, then the US will roll up its sleeves, put on its knuckle dusters and say, right, what do we have to do? Well, this is uh, quite difficult because the US is not accustomed to playing such a long game, whereas China, it's part of their culture. Well, I disagree. The US was perfectly ex- uh, used to doing that during the Cold War itself. Um, obviously... It's forgotten how to do that during this last couple of decades of anything goes globalization and the belief that everyone's a capitalist uh, and that you know we're all just going to get along and trade with each other and politics doesn't matter anymore. I don't think it will take too long for the US to rediscover uh, how it used to operate during the Cold War and reset back to that kind of uh, operating system, if you will. So it's very much thinking along the lines of a Cold War. It's, it's redirecting itself into a Cold War persona? Well, it is, and I have to underline, China's been doing that in advance already. So the US is merely responding to what China has already been doing. So it's a mirroring action. It's far too lazy intellectually to turn around and just say, oh, this is all Donald Trump. You know, If only he went away, this would go away. I can assure you wholeheartedly, if you fully understand the underlying dynamics of this, Trump has escalated everything. But in terms of who started our move in this particular direction, it's been all China. Well, yes, because, uh, because these tensions were there when Obama was president as well. Yes, and they chose to ignore them uh, on the foreign policy front uh, and instead to try and pivot towards the TPP, thinking that somehow that may prove to be a mechanism that would have contained China. And I can assure you, I don't think it would have. What, what impact do you see this happening on the global economies? Well, it will be a short, sharp shock. I mean, you are already seeing supply chains flooding out of China in the industrial sector and into Vietnam, into Indonesia, into India, basically Thailand, Malaysia, basically anywhere else uh, other than uh, China. But China is so huge, of course, that, you know, that it still retains critical mass in many industries for the moment. But if we do get this trade war slash cold war escalating, then, uh, then certainly this is only going to get worse you are going to see further disruption to supply chains. Uh, And in the near term, yes, it's going to be very, very negative for economic growth. Uh, This is potentially recession-creating, isn't it? 
Well, in terms of what you would define as a global recession, which is global growth growing below 3%, I believe that's a technical threshold. Yes, we are looking at a mild global recession coming up already. But in a worst-case scenario, it could certainly be far more painful than that. Now, that being said, this isn't a one-way street. I mean, you would have this wrench, and then things would start to regrow looking differently. It's effectively like you know, cutting a leg off a, off a lizard or a gecko. Of course, it's incredibly painful, but then they do regrow albeit in a different form, and that's what we would see again here. Uh, and, of course, it would also have a great impact on China because China is very dependent on uh, its exports in market. Uh, it would do, and, in fact, it can potentially have an even larger uh, negative effect on China than people realise because we're only talking about the export sector so far and we're only talking about the US. First of all, what if this were to spread to other economies? Other Western economies said, well, we'll follow the US lead. That's even larger an impact on China. Uh, and secondly, and let's think about this, from a FX perspective, if China can't earn U.S. dollars by selling to the U.S., and if we see a dry up of investment into China, which allows it to earn U.S. dollars, and if we see a distancing of the U.S. from Chinese capital markets as well, which I think is entirely logical and consistent with the path that they're going down and the picture that I'm painting, then China can't earn U.S. dollars at all. At which point, how does China trade internationally with countries like Australia if it doesn't have any U.S. dollars to buy products from you? So the implications of this are just absolutely enormous. Do the Chinese realise this? Yes, I think they do. Which means at some stage they might have to come to the table. I don't think they will. Because I think you're presuming that they're willing to sacrifice their political economic model which places the Communist Party at the centre of everything. And they're able to say black is white, up is down in economic terms. And everyone around the rest of the world says, that. yes, that's correct. They will lose that ability if these reforms are introduced. So I don't think for a moment that they will ever go down that road, which means they have a much harder choice to make, which is how much do they sacrifice, how much do they retreat in order to maintain this political stability, which is absolutely first and foremost to them, above and beyond everything else. With, with- talking here about years of conflict, aren't we? Possibly decades. Decades? Wow. Well, I mean, it depends. It, of course, you know, things could be far more fragile than they look. In the number of experts on the Soviet Union in the 1980s who were saying, of course, the Soviet Union will be there forever, and then, of course, the whole thing just collapsed. So, you know, it's not absolutely beyond their own possibilities that things could uh, move more quickly than people expect. But the greater likelihood is that, yes, this is something that's going to be defining our working lives for the rest of our career. Well, Michael, thank you very much for bringing Rabobank's perspective to it, and uh, we will all watch this with great interest. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, slightly more than one-third of global fund managers surveyed by Bank of America Merrill Lynch expect a global recession in the next 12 months, the highest since 2011. The percentage of investors who've turned negative on the outlook mirrors Bank of America Merrill Lynch's US economists who think there is close to a 1 in 3 chance of a recession in the next 12 months. Bank of America issued its revised forecast in a worrying note to clients overnight saying in uncertainty around the ongoing trade war with China is weighing heavily on the world's stock markets. Our official model has a probability of a recession over the next 12 months only pegged at about 20%, but our subjective call based on the slew of data and events leading us to believe it is closer to 1 in 3 chance, Michelle Meyer, 
Bank of America's head of US economics said. Some of the lights on the economic dashboard were also flashing yellow, strongly hinting at a looming recession, Ms. Meyer said. Three of the five indicators that track business performance, industrial production, automotive sales and aggregated number of hours worked, are worrying. Goldman Sachs echoed those concerns a day earlier, warning that the bitter US-China trade war could lead to a recession. And Hong Kong's deepening political crisis now risks becoming an economic one. After protesters brought the city's airport to a standstill, investors and business leaders are growing increasingly alarmed by the fallout from 10 weeks of anti-government demonstrations that show no sign of letting up. The short-term worry is that Hong Kong's economy is headed for recession as local unrest combines with the US-China trade war to pummel retail sales, weigh on real estate prices and sink the city's $4.9 trillion stock market. But an even bigger fear is that Hong Kong's standing as a safe and reliable commercial hub will face irreparable damage, a potential death blow for an economy that has leveraged its business-friendly reputation to become the primary gateway between China and the rest of the world. Further unrest risks worsening an already dismal economic outlook. Hong Kong's GDP fell by 0.3% in the second quarter from the previous three months, while the key Purchasing Managers Index dropped to the lowest since March 2009 in July. Property transactions sank by 35% in the same period, and retail sales have slumped for five straight months. Worries about how China will respond to the protests are adding to investor unease. And ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence fell marginally by 0.3% last week. The economic conditions sub-indices were down, with current economic conditions falling 4.3%, closing below its long-term average, while future economic conditions lost 0.3%. And Australian wages growth remains low and flat, with the seasonally adjusted wage price index rising 0.6% in the June quarter 2019, and 2.3% through the year, according to figures released by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And the NAB Conditions and Confidence Survey found business conditions declined slightly in the month, falling two points to two index points in July, driven by the decline in the employment sub-index. Conditions in retail, construction and wholesale saw sharp declines in the month, partially offset by increases in mining, transport and utilities and finance, business and property services. While conditions were softer, Overall business confidence edged higher in the month to four index points, but that measure still remains below average. The Employment Index, which is watched closely by the Reserve Bank of Australia as a guide for interest rate decisions, fell five points and points to a reduction in the number of new jobs likely to come through the system. And Australians face declining living standards and mounting costs from traffic congestions and energy bills unless the nation ramps up its infrastructure spending pipeline, according to a government-commissioned report. Infrastructure Australia highlights growing concerns that rapid population growth in cities such as Sydney and Melbourne have strained ageing transport links. The body also underlines growing stresses from rising energy costs and inadequate water security. The report finds... Energy affordability has deteriorated with a steep rise in network costs driving energy bills 35% higher over the past decade and up by 56% per unit of electricity consumed in real terms. The much maligned National Broadband Network continues to face challenges. In the 4.8 million households now switched on, services haven't met the expectations of many users.
In the water sector, while many metropolitan utilities are increasing the sustainability and quality of their services through innovation, some regional areas are suffering from growing water security fears as large parts of the country are in drought. And without increased spending, road and public transport congestion costs could double to nearly $40 billion by 2031. Community opposition has contributed to the delay, cancellation or or mothballing of more than $20 billion of infrastructure projects in the last decade. And Scott Morrison is facing growing pressure from his backbench to make meaningful changes to industrial relations laws, amid warnings that another term of policy inaction would be unacceptable. With business starting to ramp up its calls for change, the backbench is also beginning to organise, as evidenced by 17 coalition MPs recently attending a private briefing by the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. The briefing for MPs who entered Parliament in 2016 and 19 was held when Parliament sat the week before last and was organised by Liberal MPs Tim Wilson, Jason Falinski and Andrew Bragg. It was designed to inform MPs from the perspective of small and medium business as to what the ACCI considered were the flaws in the system. One of the biggest pushes emerging from the backbench is to exempt small and medium business from unfair dismissal laws. These protections were wound back when John Howard instituted work choices, but restored when Labor won power in 2007. Other targets are the enterprise bargaining system and modern awards. All these changes would risk putting the government on a collision course with the Labor movement. And Subway has shuttered roughly one in ten of its Australian sandwich shops as franchisees grapple with changing consumer habits and a tough retail environment. The reversal of fortunes for the once dominant chain has led to a cluster of disgruntled owners putting their stores on the market as they struggle to break even. Owners claim cascading bills generated by expensive store refits that head office insisted on to help salvage the brand locally have had a dire impact on finance. And in a landmark case for responsible lending, the Federal Court has dismissed allegations against Westpac, brought by the corporate regulator, that it breached responsible lending laws more than a quarter of a million times. Westpac had been accused of breaking responsible lending laws 261,987 times. ASIC claimed Westpac used a frugal benchmark, the Household Expenditure Measure, HEM, to estimate potential borrowers' living expenses. ASIC argued Westpac approved some loans using the HEM when the customer's actual declared expenses were higher than the benchmark. Westpac said it acted in good faith when assessing the loans and satisfied its legal obligation to lend responsibly by not providing customers with loans that were unsuitable. But the judge found a bank could never fully assess a borrower's expenses because a borrower had the power to change some of their expenses after taking on a loan so that they could make payments. The judge ruled that borrowers could ditch luxury food items like Wagyu steak and Shiraz for more humble fare. Justice Nine Perham told a Sydney courtroom that the Australian Securities Investments Commission must pay Westpac's legal costs after he dismissed the case. The judgment lasted five minutes after some debate from ASIC's legal team about the specifics of which legal costs would be paid. And Qantas and Australia Post have inked a new $1 billion expansion of the national delivery system in a move that promises to overhaul online shopping for Australians and improve prospects for Amazon. The seven-year deal will see Australia Post use Qantas domestic flights to move freight around the country, commandeering in the process three enormous Airbuses exclusive for freight delivery. 
Each will allow the postage service to deliver an additional nine tonnes of post on each flight. That, combined with access to as many as 1,500 domestic passenger flights a day, promises to be a coup for Australian e-commerce. Amazon needs this deal. That's because Amazon is predicted to take up the largest slice of the pie as the Australian online retail market grows. Accordingly, the shopping giant needs the kind of distribution network to allow it to expand here. And the profit reporting season continues. JB Hi-Fi's net profit rose a better than expected 7.1% to $249.8 million in 2019, as strong sales of mobile phones, computers and audio equipment offset weak demand for software such as music and movies. Horizon's annual net profits after tax fell 15% to $473 million, while group underlying earnings before interest and taxation fell 12% to $829 million. Property and funds manager GPT Group said lower property valuation gains resulted in its half-year profit falling by 52%, falling to $352.6 million Australian dollars for the six months through June, down from $728.5 million a year earlier. Bendigo and Adelaide Bank said redundancies and remediation costs are behind a 6.6% decline in full-year cash earnings to $415 million. Industrial glove maker Ansel reported a 19.6% drop in annual profit on hurt by uncertainties around US import tariffs and a weakened European economy. Profit from continuing operations for the year ended June 30 declined to $113.1 million compared with $140.6 million a year earlier. Challenger, the listed retirement products provider, has reported a full-year nominalised net profit before tax of $548 million. Magellan's net profit rose 35% to $364.2 million. In its third quarter update, NAB revealed an increase in bank revenue with cash earnings up 1% to $1.65 billion. CSL recorded an 11% jump in net profit after tax to US $1.92 billion, up 17% on a constant currency basis for the full year to June 30. Tabcor's underlying earnings jumped 42.5% to $397.6 million. For the first six months of 2019, HT&E reported profit from continuing operations of $13.3 million, down 10% from $14.9 million in the corresponding period last year. Pact Group has scrapped its final dividend to shareholders after it swung to a net loss of $290 million. Diversified property group Dexus reported a 4.3% lift in funds from operations, the key metric to measure real estate investment trusts, to $681.5 million. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to James Cooper-Jones, the CEO of CropLogic, which is expanding into the potentially billion-dollar hemp market. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about his proposals for an evaluator general. And of course I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBiz, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 